Good evening. So, everybody asleep tonight? No, two good evenings back. I know that a lot of us have gone on a cruise, but I mean, come on. Come on now. It's good to see everybody tonight. Hope you all are doing well. Uh, as I was preparing to speak tonight and I was just kind of gathering my thoughts together, it occurred to me just how uh, well spiritually fed we are here at Center Grove. I was thinking back over the last few weeks uh, over sermons that have been given and the classes that go on, uh, the, the wonderful lessons we heard on our retreat. Brother John had a wonderful lesson this morning I got to listen to after the fact. Uh, and so we're just very spiritually well fed here at Center Grove. But, you know, of all the sermons that we've heard recently, the one that got me excited, because this subject always gets me excited, uh, was Brother Chris's sermon on the historical importance of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, as soon as you tell me that you're speaking on the resurrection, my ears perk up, and I thought he did a wonderful job and, and brought out some great points in that lesson. So uh, I'm riding his coattails a bit, not talking about the same things he talked about, kind of taking it from a slightly different angle. But tonight I wanted to uh, speak just for a few minutes about the resurrection, not just of Jesus, but especially our uh, resurrection that we look forward to in the future. When you think about the Apostle Paul, uh, I really like this artwork of Paul because I think it, it well illustrates how he had to feel almost 95% of the time. Well, if you ever get that headache when somebody does something, you just kind of put this here, the tension headache, as Paul was thinking about all the churches that he had helped start, all the Christians that he kind of had taken under his wing as a spiritual father. And uh, Paul had to deal with a lot of problems in these churches. Tonight we're going to be thinking about his letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians. When you think about that letter, think about all the things that Paul had to address over the course of the book of 1 Corinthians. The church at Corinth had a lot of problems, and I mean a lot of problems, some advanced problems even. It's amazing in the course of the book that Paul never tells them, you're out. You are out of the church. You're no longer in the body of Christ. You're no longer brothers and sisters. You blew it. He doesn't say that. Rather, he says, there's some problems that need to be addressed. There's some things that need to be dealt with so that you all can live and worship and live together in a way as brothers and sisters that's pleasing to the Lord. But even with all these problems, it's, it's interesting to me that by the time we get to chapter 15, one chapter shy of the end of the book, that Paul really almost takes on a surprised tone when he has to address an issue going on at Corinth, the issue being... Paul says, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There was a problem in Corinth. The problem was that there were some that believed that there was no resurrection of the dead. But we have to understand in context the specific problem that Corinth was having because it's not unusual today for people to doubt the authenticity of the resurrection account that we would find in the Gospels. Uh, a poll that was taken by the BBC in 2017 said a quarter of people who describe themselves as Christians in Great Britain, so this is across the pond, but said, do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, a survey commissioned by the BBC suggests. However, almost one in ten people of no religion say they do believe the Easter story, but it has some content that should not be taken literally. And so, on one hand, you have people uh, that describe themselves as Christians 
who don't believe that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. On the other hand, you have non-religious people that believe it did, the story is true in some sense, but that parts of it should not be taken literally. What you have is a people in the modern day that have taken any sort of bite, any sort of power out of the resurrection story by either saying it didn't happen and or rather the most fantastical parts of it didn't happen. My question being, if you take away the most powerful parts of the resurrection, the most miraculous parts of the resurrection, what do you have left? There's no resurrection to speak of. There's no story there. And yet that's what many in the modern uh, scientistic, if I can use that word, uh, world that we live in have come to believe. But you have to understand that that was not the problem that Corinth was having. Corinth's problem could be worded like this. Their assumption was the resurrection happened. The resurrection of Jesus happened. They believed that. But we will not be raised from the dead. In other words, the problem was not in the lack of belief in Jesus' resurrection, but in a future resurrection. And you might say, well, that's kind of interesting. You might not come across many people that would have that belief today or talk about that. Usually it would kind of go, go wholesale. Either they believe that Jesus rose from the dead or they don't. We don't talk a lot about the idea of believing or disbelieving a future resurrection. But that was the issue that was going on in Corinth, this specific problem in this context. Again, we can see that they believe in the resurrection of Jesus because Paul addresses them as brothers and sisters in Christ. They are, again, following to some extent that system of doctrine. They consider themselves to be Christians. And note what Paul said at the start of chapter 15. This is kind of pieced together from a few verses. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, so we preach and so you believed. So Paul says, at some point at least, it appears, the Corinthians believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that had happened historically right before the church was established. But the problem was the, the Corinthians, for whatever reason, culturally in their society, did not believe in the foolishness that there would be any sort of future resurrection of humans. In verse 12, Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now I've put the word future there because in context we have to understand that's what he's talking about. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed raised from the dead, and the implication there is almost he's proclaimed raised from the dead in Corinth. Some of you are preaching Christ raised from the dead. Then how can you say there's no future resurrection of the dead? How can you do that? Logically, it doesn't make a lot of sense. In fact, Paul will say it's impossible to hold that stance. In verse 13, he says, But if there is no future resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Again, note that we need that context to understand what he's saying there. If you're saying nothing's coming as far as resurrection in the future, then Christ's resurrection is now called into question. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
And so note what Paul says here. You might come into this lesson saying, well, I don't have a very strong opinion about the future resurrection. I don't think about it very much. But note that Paul would say when it comes to the theology of resurrection, that the resurrection of Jesus and the future resurrection of all people on the last day are inseparably linked. They have to go together. So much so that if we got rid of the future resurrection, then Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. They're literally riding together so closely that we can't get rid of one without the other. So the question in our modern context, we aren't in Corinth. We don't have the problem in this church that people are denying a future resurrection. Well, what do we do with the future resurrection of the dead, our resurrection from the dead, if you will. I think what you commonly find described and preached uh, from the pulpits of, of sound congregations by sound brethren is you find a lot of focus on the life that people live, and we know that after life would come death, and we know that after death comes an entrance into the Hadean realm. We say that to talk about paradise and torment, the intermediate state, if you will, we talk about that that happens when a person dies during the course of time, but we know that at the end of time there's going to come a judgment day, and we know that after the judgment day there will be a great judgment. Some will be sent into everlasting torment, but we know that the righteous will be sent to heaven, and they will live in heaven with God for eternity. This is the, the setup that we usually have when we talk about these things. The problem is we're missing a big part here. We're missing the resurrection. We, we're not talking about it to a certain extent. And I, and I wonder why that is. I think there are some reasons for it. I think sometimes we equate resurrection with just life after death. Well, Jesus rose from the dead, and that means that after death, we're going to continue to be alive in some sense. But I think that undersells the biblical idea of resurrection as we're going to look at it tonight. What did Jesus have to say about resurrection? Did he make a big deal of it and what would happen on the last day? I think we see that he does. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. He goes on to say in John 6, 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says those who believe will be resurrected on the last day, the day of judgment. It's an important part of that story. John chapter 11, we know after the death of Lazarus, Martha, uh, Martha comes forward to Jesus and says, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus says, though your brother died, he will live again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Apparently, at this time in Jewish teaching, they understood that on the last day there would be a resurrection. But Jesus said to her, maybe one of the most amazing responses in all of the Bible. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. It's one thing to teach that there will be a resurrection on the last day. It's another thing to stand in the flesh as Jesus and say, I will be the one doing the resurrecting. I am the one who will raise you and your brother from the dead on that last day. What we see is, again, that when Jesus talks about resurrection, he seems to be talking about a raising up separate and apart from continued existence 
after death. Now, I know that, again, we all believe that death is not the end and that we continue to exist after death. But we should know that that is different than what we talk about when we speak about resurrection. Note what Jesus said in Luke chapter 23 when he's talking to the thief that's hanging next to him on the cross. It says, and he said, the thief, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Did Jesus expect that himself and the thief would continue to exist after their deaths? Absolutely. Everybody understood that. There was going to be a continued existence. But Jesus said that's going to happen today. When we're talking about the resurrection, we're talking about something on the last day. We're talking about something different from a continued existence, even in a paradise state. And so we see there that eternal life and resurrection, in this sense, does not just equal a continued existence. It must mean more than that. Well, when we, when we think about death and you think about Jesus hanging on the cross, the thieves hanging there on the cross, people in the world really have two separate understandings of death. There's really only two that I can think of. One is that at death you, ex you cease to exist as a person, right? You just kind of go out of existence. You stop having any kind of thought. You stop any kind of awareness, and you're just gone forever. But those of us that read the Bible know that death biblically is described as the separation of the spirit from the body, right? Just as uh, the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead, as James would tell us in his book, by implication noting the body without the spirit is dead. There's a separation that happens there. The spirit returns to God and the body goes back to the dust of the earth. But what about that body? What about the body that goes back to the dust? Is that the end of the story? I think about the death of Jesus again. What was Jesus's body like after his crucifixion? We can't even begin to think of the damage to his body all of the the pain and the torment he went through the scourging the crucifixion he had to look like a shell of a human barely human in the way that he looked and yet in jesus resurrection it was that very body not another not a recreation but that body that god rose from the dead well, what about our bodies as we think about our resurrection we see from the bible that resurrection is a reversal of biblical death. If biblical death is the separation of the spirit from the body, biblical resurrection is the body and the spirit reunited. That's what happened in Jesus' case, and I believe the Bible teaches that's what will happen in our case as well. Look what Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, <clears throat> and he notes the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, we don't talk about first fruits a lot in day-to-day -day conversation, but we understand biblically that the idea of first fruits, an offering of first fruits, would be an offering from the harvest. As, as you're a farmer, you have your harvest come up. The very first crops that come up after this long you know, farming season, you would think you want to enjoy those first fruits, but guess what you have to do? You give those fruits to God because you believe that God's going to bring the rest of that harvest in and that you're going to give him the first and the best as a sacrifice. Well, it says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, meaning Jesus died and he was resurrected from the dead. He's the first of many. He's the first resurrection of that kind for many more to come. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong 
to Christ. Paul says our resurrection, the one that's going to copy in a way and imitate Jesus's, is going to come when Jesus returns to judge the earth at the end. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That is a profound statement because, again, if death is the separation of the body and the spirit, the only way that Jesus can truly destroy death is by reuniting the body and the spirit of all those who have gone before who were faithful in him. And so to destroy death forevermore, he must again reunite the spirit and the body of those who believe in him. Paul goes on as he talks about this. He knows that he's going to get some pushback from people. He knows those in Corinth are going to ridicule some of the things that he's saying. But know what Paul says logically. He says, logically, if you truly believe there is no future resurrection of the dead, you basically have a pitiful, morbid existence to look forward to. He says, if the dead are not raised, and then he puts puts quotes here, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. That's pretty much a mic drop from Paul there, isn't it? Saying, there are some among you that don't even believe that God's going to raise you up from the dead, and in doing so, you reveal you have no knowledge of the God that you serve he literally says it's like you're in a drunken stupor you need to sober up and understand what God is going to do for you at the end so a quick recap as we go through this before we go on to the latter part discussing the nature of our resurrection what has Paul said here Paul says if Christ is raised from the dead as we believe he was so we must also be raised at the end He said that God is the God who raises the dead. That's what personifies him. That's what he's revealed himself to be. He also said the reality of the resurrection is the pillar of Christian hope. It's the foundation. Without it, we have no hope. We have no justification. And we're still dead in our sins. He said that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection and that we'll follow after him. He said that on the last day, King Jesus will destroy death. And he says to disbelieve these things is to live in a drunken stupor and fundamentally misunderstand God. These are things that we perhaps don't talk about enough, but Paul would say they're foundational to our understanding of who God is and who Christ is. He says these are the things that have to happen as we tie it into Jesus' resurrection and ours. The next question that people tend to have is Paul talking about a literal resurrection, Now, you may say, well, what does a literal resurrection mean versus any other kind of resurrection? But as we've said, there are those that disbelieve that even Jesus was raised from the dead in a literal resurrection. They would say, well, Jesus did have a resurrection. It was a spiritual resurrection. He appeared uh, as some sort of apparition, right, as some sort of uh, spiritual being. They they stopped short of saying a ghost, but I'll just say it. They're saying he was a ghost that showed up, uh, but his body, of course, didn't raised from the dead because that can't happen there's a few problems with this number one what did jesus literally say out of his resurrection body i am not a ghost right he had to say it the reason he had to say it is in his resurrection body he could seemingly pass through walls he could kind of randomly show up in places he could disfigure his face and change the way that he looked and yet he said i am not a ghost Well, when it comes to the future resurrection, is Paul talking about some kind of spiritual resurrection or a literal resurrection? Let's think about that for just a minute. 
In Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, Paul says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now note that in this context, Paul seems to be drawing on death and resurrection in a typological sense. He says, you know, we were baptized into the death of Jesus. We died with him so that we might be raised to walk in a new kind of life, right? When we're baptized, we're raised up out of that water and it's a sort of resurrection, right? It's not a literal resurrection. We didn't die and then come back up biologically, but at the same time, it's a sort of resurrection. So someone could point to this and say, well, look, Paul uses resurrection in a spiritual sense. It's not a literal physical resurrection of your body. It's just kind of a spiritualized meaning of that. But if we were to continue, note how Paul talks about the body in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, and God raised the Lord Jesus and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? In this context, Paul is talking about in the church at Corinth, there were those that were soliciting prostitutes. And we understand that that's a sin. But Paul doesn't just say it's a sin against God because it's the wrong thing to do. It's mentally bad. It's spiritually awful. Paul says your bodies are members of Christ. Christ has put his seal on your body, and if you take your body and sin with it, then you're making your body, again, members of a prostitute. He says, God's going to raise you up like he raised Christ. Why are you acting in this way? Why would you do this with the body that God is going to raise on the last day? And then note what Paul says in Romans 8, what Sean read for us earlier. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. In that context, I would dare anyone to tell me how that could be referencing anything but these bodies, right? The mortal body is that which dies, the body which returns to the dust. And Paul says here, if the spirit who raised Jesus dwells in you, it will raise you just like it raised him and it will give life on that day to your mortal body. And I think again that that has to be in reference to the resurrection. So when we think about the resurrection that Paul preached, we can't get around it. Paul preached that not only did Jesus rise from the dead literally, but that the future resurrection of Christians would be a bodily resurrection, a resurrection of your body. And I just want to take a moment to say, and, and this is just kind of for free off the top of my head, a, anything besides a bodily resurrection is not a resurrection. Okay, that's what resurrection is. Resurrection is the raising up of a dead body. Anything else that you hear might be called a resurrection, maybe called something along those lines, but if it's not bodily resurrection, then it's not resurrection. That's what God has promised, and that's what Paul preached. Now, Paul, as he describes this, he expects that there is going to be pushback. He says in verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, Paul doesn't, again, in text, we can't hear his inflection, but you can almost just put that sarcastic kind of attitude behind it. Because the way Paul's going to respond to this shows that this person is not asking this in good faith. They're basically saying, oh, so the, the dead are raised up. Well, then what kind of body are they raised with? I saw somebody's body that had decomposed. They were turned back into dust. They were a skeleton. What kind of body are they going to be raised with, Paul? 
Well, note what Paul says. Uh, well, actually, let's do this first. I find that today that there's some people, when you talk about resurrection, that have been, grown up in the church, that have been raised and taught the truth. But at the same time, when you talk about things like resurrection and bodily resurrection, they may say things like this. Well, you know, it, it's different. You know, the resurrection at the end, that's not really a bodily resurrection. They say things like, well, the Bible says it dies as a physical body. It's raised a spiritual body. And then they say flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Well, the funny thing about those statements, if we were going to reuse them in response to what Paul just said, is that who said these things? Paul said them. In what chapter does he say them? 1 Corinthians 15, the chapter we're reading from, right? So we can't use those statements to undercut everything Paul just said about resurrection. He's the one that said them in this chapter. And so instead, we're going to have to make them fit into the context of what Paul is saying. But just note that Paul wouldn't undercut everything he's just said with two statements that would throw away the idea of resurrection, at least in some sense. Note what Paul says back. He says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come with? He answers, you foolish person. That's Paul's answer, right? How dare you ask that? You're being a fool when you have that kind of attitude. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Now note here, Paul is shifting to a picture, an idea of sowing a seed, right? We understand this. We've, we've all seen this process kind of happen. I remember doing something along these lines in kindergarten, right? You take a seed, you put it in soil. What pops up out of that seed is the plant that sprung to life from it. But the reality is it does not look like that seed, that seed is really nowhere to be seen in the final plant. In fact, as we look, that seed is broken open and subsumed into the organism for it to truly grow. And Paul is going to say it's no different with the body. The body is sown in one way, but it is going to change. There's going to be a difference that happens when Jesus raises us on the last day. And yet at the same time, when someone sees a plant grow, nobody looks at it and says, I just don't believe that that's from the seed that I put in there. I think somebody came in the middle of the night and they took out that seed and they put a new plant in and it's not the same thing. Is the plant the seed? It is. It's the same, right? It's the same being, and yet a difference has happened. That doesn't make it a different being, but it means that something different has happened with its life. Paul says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. Now, it's kind of important for us to understand here that Paul, through this next section, he's going to make comparative statements where we have to kind of understand what he's talking about here. In this statement, note that Paul is going to talk about continuity and discontinuity. Now, those are great Scrabble words if you ever have the, the tiles on your board, right? But what I'm talking about here is continuity is when we discuss in the resurrection, there are some things that are going to be remaining the same, they're going to be consistent from before the resurrection and after the resurrection, but there's going to be things that are not the same. Discontinuity, there's going to be changes. Well, what's the same? Paul says what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. We understand that what is sown and what is raised in some sense are the same being, right? It's us. We will be sown. You know, all of us to some extent are going to be maybe buried. Maybe we'll have a grave. Maybe we'll be cremated, but we, our remains will be put away, right? Then at some point from that point, we will be raised, which is continuity, but we were perishable before and afterwards, we are going to be raised imperishable, Paul then makes this statement, which is one of the most difficult things to parse as we talk about the resurrection. Paul says, it is sown a natural body, it is raised 
a spiritual body. Now, to, to the person reading this, at some point, people just go, okay, well, that's the explanation right there. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. That is not the same type of thing. Right? When we say the natural body, we think of the body that we have now, the body that can touch and feel and smell and see, the body we can use to hug people, the body we can use to run through a field, the body we can use to hike up a mountain. That's the natural body. A spiritual body, we assume, must be some kind of what? A ghost, a spirit, right? something invisible, something that can kind of pass through things. And so someone says, well, those are just not the same type of thing. The resurrection on the last day for us is not going to be a physical one. It's going to be a spiritual one, and they would use those words. Now, this is the part where I'm not a Greek scholar, but I think it is helpful to understand that the words here for natural body and spiritual body mean something specific in this case. The word for the natural body here, the word natural there, is psychikos, natural body, physical body. The funny thing is that word literally means a soulish body. A soulish body. That kind of sounds ghostly to me. I don't know about you. A soulish body, but that's the word that it uses for the natural body. And then the spiritual body is the word pneumaticos. And that means a spirit-ish body. And so if that helps clear it up for you at all, Paul says it's sown a soulish body. It's reaped a spiritish body. And you go, thanks, Paul. Really appreciate it. That clears it up just clear as mud, right? Well, what are we meaning when we use these words in this sense? One thing that can help us here is to see how Paul uses these words in another context in the same book. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says the natural, the psychikos, the soulish person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But the spiritual pneumaticos person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Question, Paul here, when he says the spiritual person, is he talking about an invisible ghost person? No. In this case, both the people are physical Christians, right? Not, not even Christians. One's a worldly man and one's a Christian, right? He says they interpret things and accept things from the Spirit of God in different ways because one is natural and one is spiritual. So we see from that context, when Paul says a spiritual body, he doesn't have to mean an invisible ghost-like body. But as we go forward from this, we also need to understand something about these words. These words in Greek do not note what something is made of. Okay, if I said a natural body and a spiritual body you might assume i mean a body that's made of natural materials and a body that's made of spiritual materials but in reality what these words talk about is what animates or fuels something right the natural man is fueled by natural things he understands the world in the natural kind of animalistic way but the spiritual man is supplied by the spirit of god and the spirit of god's understanding let me use an example to try to help you at least in some way, understand what I'm saying here. What you have here are two trucks sitting out in the middle of this field here. And what you might not know is one is a gas truck and the other is a diesel truck, right? And so what you have with these trucks is you have continuity and you have discontinuity. The continuity is they're both what? Trucks. They're both trucks, right? But the discontinuity is they run on different fuel. Right? The fuel that runs them is different. And so now that we have that kind of knowledge, we can put it to the same thing with this verse. It said it is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. 
Note that there's continuity because in both cases it is a body, right? It's a body being raised. The discontinuity is the natural body that runs by natural means and the spiritual body that runs by spiritual means. Now, again, Paul could have said it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spirit. He could have said that. That word was available to him, but he didn't say that. He said it's sown one kind of body and it's raised another kind of body. Well, the question then comes, what animates, what fuels the natural body and what animates or fuels the spiritual body? Again, we know that our body is fueled by a pumping heart. It's fueled by the blood that goes through us. And when those processes stop, what happens to us? Dead as a doornail, right? But we're talking about the potential of a body that's run and fueled by something else what does the bible say first peter chapter 3 for christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to god being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit jesus's fleshly body died to the flesh it wasn't running because a fleshly body if you crucify it and stab it with a spear it dies but in the spirit he was made alive and then in Romans 8:11 which we already read it tells us that again it's the spirit who will raise us as it raised Jesus not a body that runs on a beating heart not a body that runs on blood pumping through it but a body that's fueled and empowered by the very spirit of God exactly the way that Jesus was raised from the dead that's how Christ was raised from the dead and the bible says that's how we will be raised from the dead as Paul continues, we see that I think we can tie this in, this continuity and discontinuity, to these phrases here. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. There's a reading of that verse that says, we will have no bodies. We will be invisible. We will be ghosts because bodies can't enter into heaven. But I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In this case, flesh and blood does not have to mean a literal skin and bones body. Rather, what it means is those things which pass away. We can see something similar when, Jesus, uh, when Peter made the great confession of who Jesus was. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In that sense, Jesus isn't saying, Peter, your body didn't whisper in your ear and tell you. He's saying that which is perishable has not revealed this eternal knowledge to you. It's that which is imperishable. And here Paul says that. He says, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom, but the imperishable can. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Again, noting that Paul does not say we must remove this body. We must get out of the body so that we can just be a spirit. No, Paul says God is going to, even for those who are alive, change them. So they'll go from being a perishable body to being a body that will never perish. What does this all mean as we close? What I know is this. The, the gospel tells us that resurrection is the hope for all of us. Resurrection is what we are looking forward to because those that are saved will be resurrected from the dead. And I don't pretend that I have all the answers to this because the Bible still leaves some things a mystery. I find it interesting that in 1 John chapter 3, the apostle John, who had seen the resurrected Jesus, had touched the resurrected Jesus, had talked to the resurrected Jesus, said, we do not yet know what we shall be. 
He said, I don't, I don't fully understand it. But what did he say? But we know we shall be like he is. That's what we know. We know whatever Jesus is, that is what we will be like. I don't know the answer to all of the questions for what comes along with resurrection body. Well, if we have a body in heaven, what does that mean? I think it means this. We'll be able to hug each other. We'll be able to hold each other. We'll be able to see each other. We will be together in a real sense. I think sometimes people get nervous about heaven because they think, I don't know how to be a ghost. I don't know how to hang out with my family as as an invisible, ethereal angel on a cloud with a harp. I don't think that's what heaven is. I think in heaven we will have eternal life and we will be embodies. We will be people. We will be together. And that is something that I look forward to. But at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul ties it up together for us nicely in this statement. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What does that mean? It means what we do with this body matters. It means the work that we do in this life will follow us in some way into the next life, and it will indeed be us. I've heard some people question before, well, when I go to heaven, God's going to fix me, right? God's going to buff out all of my rough edges. He's going to take away my personality. He's going to take away this. And kind of the picture they paint is that once we go to heaven, God's going to wipe us all clean, and we're all just going to kind of be robots up there. I don't think that's the case. I know we'll be sinless, but at the same time, I will continue to have my personality, I believe. I will continue to be me, and I think that those of us that are in here, if I, by the grace of God, am there, you will recognize me. You'll recognize me for who I am. There's other things that come to my mind with that as well. I think about those among us that we know in our lives here in the congregation, those that grow up that have various challenges. There are people that never advance beyond a, a three-year-old level, a four-year-old level, a first-grade level, and they grow up to be some of the sweetest, happiest people in the world. But imagine a day in the resurrection where those people will be on the exact same level as we are, and what they will remember is every time that you loved them. And we're nice to them and talk to them. And they'll be just like you and me. And then they will see us as we see each other face to face. That's something that I look forward to. Because the relationships we build here, the things that we're doing here at Center Grove, those will follow us into eternity. We're building relationships that can last forever. And I think that the resurrection shows us that God is not done with all that we do here. He's not throwing it away and wiping the slate clean. Those things will follow us. And our work is not in vain as long as we're laboring in the Lord. Tonight, this isn't really a sermon to convict you of sin. It's not a sermon uh, to get you to respond to the invitation per se. But what I know is this, those in Christ will rise to a resurrection of eternal life. And those outside of him are going to rise to a resurrection of condemnation. For all of the joy that awaits those who are resurrected for a life in heaven, you don't even want to imagine the suffering that awaits those that are raised for eternal punishment. That must be avoided at all costs. You need to get to know Jesus. You need to love him. He's the one that will raise you from the dead on the last day. You want to be his friend when that day comes.